Can I just uh, thank you, brothers and sisters, for such a warm welcome. I've been playing truant for six weeks and been in a rather strange place. Um, I may make reference to that shortly, but um, it's great to be, be here, and thank you for the warmth of fellowship that we have with each other. I was really worried that after six weeks I wouldn't remember anybody's name anymore. <laughs> but uh, thank the Lord, that's not been a problem. We're going to read Psalm 3. This is continuing in a series which Alistair has arranged on the life of faith. This is a Psalm of David. <clears throat> o Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. <clears throat> but you are a shield around me, O Lord, my glorious one who lifts up my head. <clears throat> to the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. <clears throat> Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the jaw, you have broken the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. I was on my way back from the Antarctic just under a week ago. In fact, in last, last Sunday I was in Singapore and on the Sunday morning last week, I went down in my hotel to breakfast. It was self-service, buffet-style breakfast. And being a good Brit, I went straight for the cereals to start with, which were in short supply. Most of the other stuff I wouldn't dare even try out uh, in a completely different culture like that. But there were four dispenser units of cereals available with a handle, you know, to dispense them into a bowl. And in front of each was a placard with the name of the cereal. The first one was called Fruit Loops. I had no idea what they were. The second was Crispy Rice. I had some idea that's a bit like Rice Krispies. The next was Corn Flakes, so well, I knew exactly what they were. And the fourth was fortified cornflakes. Now, I've never seen any cereal described in such terms before. But I guess what fortified means is there's a plus to it. It's cornflakes plus. What the plus is, nobody said. <laughs> in a way, if you want to be very simplistic, there are two kinds of people. People who resemble the ordinary cornflakes, normal life, and those who are fortified, who have something added. And David is one such person. David wrote probably the majority of the Psalms, and the Psalms are so honest, are they not? 
about the human predicament. I remember when I was at least in my teens, early 20s, the Evening Standard newspaper in London used to have a kind of strap line to their adverts, which was, all human life is here. They covered everything. And you could have that as a strap line for the Book of Psalms. All of human life is represented here. Yes, even today. So what is this something else? What is this plus that David had? And I trust we have tonight, but I want to encourage us to examine our hearts. Thomas Merton, the Catholic writer who has much to benefit us, wrote, the Psalms are bread from God for our journey in the wilderness. Lightning the Psalms to manna in the desert, which the children of Israel were provided daily by God. David's Psalms, in particular, are always about the relationship between himself and God. Now this Psalm, likewise, is about himself and his relationship with God in a particular predicament. We could divide the psalm quite simply into, like the good preacher always does, three or four points. But I am not going to do that tonight, but I'll maybe just suggest four points. And they are alliterative. And if you split the the psalm into groups of two verses, there are four points. In verses one and two, We could summarize that as David's plight, which I'll go into in a moment. Verses 3 and 4 are David's prayer. Verses 5 and 6 are the peace which David knows. And finally, in 7 and 8, we could say the purpose of all that was happening. However, I don't want to particularly follow those even though they kind of trip off the tongue fairly well. Prayer, peace, purpose, and his plight. But to look at one particular point. And that is the point that I've already introduced, namely that David, in all his Psalms, is talking about the relationship between him and God. Or if you like, he's talking about what I've called the fortified life, the added dimension in his life, which is not found in everyone. So the point is, God is with me. Now David is in later years when he wrote this psalm. But the psalm is very similar to the psalms that he wrote when he was young and being pursued by Saul before David became king, as a result of the jealousy of Saul about David's forthcoming kingship. And there are a number of Psalms which cover that time in his life when he was running away from Saul. Psalms 18, 57, 59, 63, 70, and 142. There's just this one Psalm in the latter period of his life when he's also running away 
this time from Absalom. Now all these experiences, David knew that God was with him. For example, Psalm 42, which begins with that familiar phrase about panting like the heart. And there's a verse in there where he says, all your waves and billows have rolled over me. So he had a kind of relationship with God which saw in every experience of his life God's hand in it. All your waves and billows have gone over me. In this case, he is in great distress over Absalom. Now, I don't know how much we know about Absalom, but uh, let me just tell you a little bit. Absalom was the third son of David, born when David was king in Hebron. I don't know whether you knew, but David had 20 sons, and those are just the ones we know about. That doesn't include the sons of his concubines. Absalom was handsome and privileged. Somebody has described him as like, like this. He was a great favorite of his father and of the people. His charming manners, personal beauty, insinuating ways, love of pomp and royal pretensions captivated the hearts of the people from the beginning. He lived in great style, drove in a magnificent chariot, and had 50 men run before him. He was some dude. But he turned against his own father. And that was the sadness which is behind the words of this psalm. He was very clever. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel, the scriptures tell us. And he did so in a rather devious way. He stood at the gate of the city and he kind of purloined people as they were going to see the true king, David, with their particular case of grievance. And he took up their cases of grievance and pretended to be the king in David's place. And he did it so well that he won the hearts of people all over the nation. But as a result of that, he became too big for his boots. And he actually declared war against his own father. He was the leader of an insurrection. And I guess it must have been a life fortified by sheer ego. He was his own man. Beware men among us tonight of having such a spirit. Now there is a backstory to this, and it's to do with Absalom's sister called Tamar. Some of you will know the story, and it's not a pleasant one. Tamar was raped by the eldest of David's sons, Amnon. And when David heard about it, he was furious, but he didn't do anything about it. 
which Absalom, who was also furious about the fact that his brother had raped his sister, I would guess is part of the resentment that is behind this insurrection. In other words, he resented the actions of his father over something or other, almost certainly this. Now, why did David do nothing? David was furious about it, but I would suggest to you that he acted in mercy rather than anything else. He was, after all, a man after God's own heart. We see that also in the way that David forgave some of the people involved in the insurrection after the war was over. So he was like his God. There's a lovely phrase in the Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican Church which talks about God's property to have mercy. Lord, it is your property to have mercy. But sometimes that is misunderstood in the context in which it is shown. And it was certainly misunderstood by Absalom. Now, friends, have family problems, do you? I do. You have a family problem because of something that happened maybe even years ago where you or a parent or somebody else in the family maybe took a decision which was misunderstood and is still misunderstood to this day, which might simply be an act of showing mercy. You never know the whole story. <clears throat> now this series is about the life of faith. And what has to say about the life of faith that it is not straightforward when it comes to relationships. Jesus promised that. Even members of your old family will turn against you. A son against a father, as in this case. <clears throat> Here's a description of those who lived a life of faith, whose names we don't actually have, but they're written in heaven. They're from Hebrews 11. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. <clears throat> they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. That's a description of their life of faith. There's a good saying which I would like to introduce you to now. There is no testimony if there is no test. Test is the first part of the word testimony. So in this life of faith, even though it may involve trouble, as it did for David, as it has done for all the heroes of faith, their testimony is the result of the test. Now, how does faith look at, view, trouble? The way it looks at it is like this. As David did, it says, God is with me. 
if we just read the first uh, four verses of this psalm, this is David's profession of faith. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, Lord. My glorious one who lifts up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. Now look at Absalom. Full of himself. Trying to be a real man. Trying to be his own man. Do you know what happened when David fled from Absalom? David left his concubines in the palace in Jerusalem. And Absalom, in public view, had sex with every one of them. Firstly, to prove he was a real man, to display his manhood. And secondly, to disgrace the house of David. That's the kind of man Absalom was. For all his handsomeness and all that. I don't see any psalms written by Absalom. I see many written by David. I don't see any record in the scriptures of him praying when it came to the battle that he would have the Lord's help. He relied entirely upon him, his own coterie, his following. But look what happened to Absalom. This battle, incidentally, was fought between those who were faithful to David, who had fled with him across the Jordan River, if you can picture the map of the Holy Land, you've got Jericho, and that's quite close to the River Jordan and quite close to the top of the Dead Sea. If you go north-northeast from there, you come to the place where Jacob wrestled with God at Peniel. And not far from there, in this time, David's time, there was a town called Mahanaim, and David was hosted there by those who were faithful to him. When Absalom's army caught up, the battle was actually fought in a forest called the Forest of Ephraim. And half of the problem that Absalom had was coping with finding where everybody was in the forest. David, being a great military leader, had split his forces into three. So Absalom's forces were confused. Anyway, they were defeated, soundly defeated. And some of David's men came across Absalom himself. David had stayed behind on the advice of his generals in Mahanaim. So he didn't see this event. But they saw Absalom riding on a mule in the forest, and his hair got caught in the branches of an oak tree. But the mule carried on walking. So Absalom, this great man, the idol of Israel, was hanging by his hair, completely helpless. 
David had said to his three commanders, if you see the boy Absalom, do not harm him. Treat him gently. Two of the commanders were very loath to kill Absalom, but Joab, who had a history, by the way, a bloody history, decided that this was their opportunity, so he cut his head off as he dropped from the tree. And his own soldiers ended the matter. And that's where Absalom's tomb is to this day. They dug a hole, buried him, and heaped up a load of stones over the top. What a way to die. No one to help him. No one at all. Not even God. This is the difference between cornflakes and fortified cornflakes. If I may put it in that very simple way. Two completely different kinds of life. One with God, one without God. I have a book on my shelves about the Antarctic which is entitled In the Heart of the Great Alone. And having been there now, I can understand exactly what that is a description of. It is a lonely place, all ice. But nothing like the loneliness of somebody who dies like that, with no one to help, with nothing else in his life. Compare that with David, who wrote these words in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. I think in the authorized version, the phrase is, uh, for one of these verses, the uttermost parts of the earth. And I've just come back from the uttermost, uttermost parts of the earth. You cannot get more far away anywhere on the globe. But you can be alone anywhere. It is said that some of the loneliest people today live in cities. It's not a matter of not being near people. It's a matter of the inside of a man or a woman. So let me be personal now. When I go to bed at night, and David mentions this in the psalm, am I alone? King David was surely not alone. He had bodyguards. He had all kinds of security. And yet, he needed to be 
not on his own, but with God. How about you? What about the wee hours of the night when uh, our emotions can become fragile? I well remember as a child in my parents' bedroom, <clears throat> they had a illuminated text, I think you call it, in a frame, above the head of the bed, which was a quotation from this same psalm I've just read from, 139. When I awake, I am still with thee. It's a similar thought to that in the verse here where he says, I lie down and sleep. This is verse five. I wake again because the Lord is with me. The Lord sustains me. Some of you may be aware of an app which you can download free called Lectio 365 which you can dip in and out of. There is a meditation and prayers for the morning and also for the evening. I, I would commend it to you if you only dip in and out of it or only use it for the evening or only for the morning. But the evening of the Lectio 365 has a verse which it repeats more than any other verse in the Bible. And it's actually the verse which is parallel to verse 5 of Psalm 3 in Psalm 4. So in my Bible I have a line crossing over the page from one verse to the other. The last verse of Psalm 4 says, I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I've made it a practice even before I got aware of Lectio 365 of repeating that verse every single night. So my question again, when you go to sleep at night, are you on your own? Now how can I know this kind of life? Well, I need to approach in the same way that David traveled when he escaped from Absalom. Part of the secret of gleaning <clears throat> depths of truth from the Bible is discovering all the connections, some very unlikely. Paul called it dividing rightly the word of truth. Well, isn't it strange that David, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, David went the same way out of Jerusalem as did Jesus to the cross. He went over the brook Kidron and he began climbing the Mount of Olives and we are told that David was weeping. weeping over the, the sin of his son, <clears throat> Absalom. 
And how much Jesus was weeping too, surely. He wept great drops of blood even on the Mount of Olives there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so David introduces us to the way we need to go in order to have this kind of life, to know that God, the God of David, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the plus and the vital plus in our life so that our life is fortified by him. Let me quote you a little bit of C.H. Spurgeon. Let us recall to our memory the innumerable hosts which beset our divine Redeemer. He's thinking of the enemies which are mentioned over and over and over again by David in his Psalms and here in these Psalms, in this Psalm 3. How many are my foes? And this simply looks ahead to how it was for Jesus. So Spurgeon continues. Consider the innumerable hosts which beset Jesus, the legions of our sins, the armies of fiends, the crowd of bodily pains, the host of spiritual sorrows, and all the allies of death and hell set themselves in battle against the Son of Man. He went weeping. I've no doubt at times David felt God forsaken. Jesus felt God forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the path into a life of faith. And it's right here in our Old Testament, presaging the path which we know so much more about. There's an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, which I'm sure you've come across, which kind of leaps out of the page as being very curious indeed. Paul writes about the people of Israel in 1 Corinthians 10. And you remember that the rock from which the water flowed was significant in their journey. He says of them, they all ate the same spiritual food, that was the manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So now we have the idea of a rock. We already had the idea of the Psalms being manna for our journey. The living water comes from the rock, and that rock, spiritually speaking, was Christ, and it is the same today. And that is what fortifies our lives. Augustus Toplady, a hymn writer, <clears throat> wrote a huge number of hymns, actually, a bit like Charles Wesley. And he wrote some famous ones, including Rock of Ages, cleft for me, which we're going to sing after this. But I came across another of his hymns which I want to read to us tonight. 
And these are the real experiences of the life of faith. Trouble can come to the point where it causes us to question our faith. And this is exactly what he is doing in this hymn. He writes, Encompassed with clouds of distress and tempted all hope to resign, I pant for the light of thy face that I in thy beauty may shine. Disheartened with waiting so long, I sink at thy feet with my load. All plaintive I pour out my song and stretch forth my hands unto God. Shine, Lord, and my terror shall cease. The blood of atonement apply and lead me to Jesus for peace, the rock that is higher than I. Speak, Saviour, for sweet is thy voice. Thy presence is fair to behold. I thirst for thy spirit with cries and groanings that cannot be told. If sometimes I strive as I mourn, my hold of the promise to keep, the billows more fiercely return and plunge me again in the deep. While harassed and cast from thy sight, the tempter suggests with a roar, the Lord has forsaken thee quite. Thy God will be gracious no more. Yet, Lord, if thy love has designed no covenant blessing for me, ah, tell me, how is it I find some sweetness in waiting for thee? Almighty to rescue thou art, thy grace is immortal and free. Lord, succor and comfort my heart and make me live holy to thee. This is a depth of spiritual experience, which is actually the fortified life. So how do I conclude? I trust that we have been fortified even by this word and the quotation of scripture, by the witness of those in history and in scripture who have struggled in the life of faith. How about me? <clears throat> There's a book which has been published recently which everybody will be aware of called Spare. <clears throat> I did notice in the bookshops that it's less than 50% off, less than 50% of the price now, so maybe not so popular, but you know what the book's about. It's about a royal family. We've just been talking about a royal family, David's family. And it's about all the distress that has been caused as the result of probably a lot of misunderstanding. And the feelings of a boy, of a prince who had everything, who was resentful. He was just a spare part. And maybe that was the same feeling that Absalom had when he decided to dig in deep and turn against the very king himself. Absalom was the master of his own fate. David made God the master of his fate. He walked with God. 
With David, it wasn't like it was with Absalom, look at me. But it was, look at him. Look at him, the glorious one, who lifts up my head. He looks at me. I look to him. And I look to him because he looks at me. The Lord God Almighty. The Saviour Jesus Christ. And that, dear friends, is what gives the person significance. It's not all the trappings of royalty even. It is the fact that God has looked upon me. And caused me to look to him. He's looked upon me in grace. Weeping as he went. Dying on a cross. He looked at me. When he died on that cross, he looked at me. He looked at David. He looked at all who live the life of faith. So the Apostle Paul could write this, The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let me close with a question. Who is your glorious one? Your husband, your wife? Good, glad. But who really is your glorious one who is able to lift up your head in every circumstance of life, whether it's disintegrating family or whether it's health, whether it's incapacity through blindness or whatever it may be, the loss of a job, all these kind of things which are troubles which come even to those who live the life of faith. Who is my glorious one? I want to testify to you tonight that I want to repeat the words of David. You are a shield around me, O Lord. My glorious one who lifts up my head. Drooping head tonight? <laughs> Have this glorious one as the one person in your life above all others. And then you will have the fortified life. May God help us to see these things. Amen.